This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot Coaching. Become a better developer with one-on-one coaching sessions with an expert from ThoughtBot tailored to you. Currently coaching in Rails, iOS, Ember, Haskell, and Go, quickly learn how to work through individual issues so you can solve similar problems in the future. Learn more at coaching.thoughtbot.com. Do you think that like people see RailsConf and they think it's about trains? Like They must, right? I remember someone told me an anecdote once at the very first RubyConf, which was in, I think, the early 2000s. They got an exhibitor who actually was a jewelry vendor because they misunderstood Ruby. And somehow they didn't really, you know, they didn't really, I don't know, they didn't talk to people enough to sort of know that it was, yeah. Yeah. So I imagine it must be because, I mean, we've got all the trains and the logos and so on. And so as far as they're concerned, might as well be about trains. Yeah. It does look like, you know, an engineering crowd, right? So yeah. <laughs> I would imagine. I think that's a different kind of engineer. Different kind of engineer, right? <laughs> I feel like we might be slightly younger than the average train engineer, but you never know. Yeah. Probably. My son the other day asked me what the difference between the engineer and the conductor is, and I have no idea. I have no idea either. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, don't. it feels to me like the engineer is focused on the train and the conductor is focused on the passengers. Okay. Well, there we go. There that's, we go. I'll, I will report back to him. <laughs> with authority be like i just went to RailsConf, and i can tell you that uh <laughs> that's a great that's the great thing about about kids right you don't actually have to be right you just have to sound right this is very true I wanted to start by thanking you because the article you wrote on what your conference proposal is missing um, I've sent that around to a bunch of people and also used it myself. Like this is the this is the first conference I've ever submitted a proposal to, and my talk was accepted. I feel like mostly because I took all of the advice that was in there and like <laughs> took what I wanted to write and be like, oh no no, I need to make this about like what other people are going to get from it, not what I'm going to say. Yeah. So that was super helpful. I know Tom is also submitting things to um, some podcasting conferences, and he I sent it to him, and he was like, wow, this is great, thank you. So I'm taking credit now for your work. Awesome. So, that's, that's great. Cool. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. That article came out of the reviewing I did for RailsConf last year. So last year I was on the review board and I, I read every single proposal. I think I was the only person on the review board that read every single one. Uh-huh. And I didn't read them. Not, I mean, I wanted to rate them and I thought it would be useful, but I actually wanted to read them so that I could figure out what, like, what was it that I liked about the good ones, like about the ones that I knew I wanted and what was it I didn't like about the ones I immediately knew I didn't want yeah. so that I could try and help people get better at sending in good proposals because if we just you know there's a certain you get to a certain stage of of conference proposal speaking and you know how to make a proposal that sounds like someone's going to take it right so if we only take those then we're stuck with the same set of people with like plus plus or minus one or two every year that's a good point yeah and so if i want to get people in to do talks who haven't been doing a lot of talks who are new voices and aren't sort of overexposed like uh, then uh, I need to figure out how to help them get better at that stage of it. And then the next stage, of course, is help them figure out how to get better at the actual conference talk. Right. Uh, I haven't quite gotten to that blog post yet. Um, but I'll await that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you actually went through and commented on, on a lot of the proposals last year, right? I did, yeah. I didn't have a lot of time, as much time this year to do that. Sure. Uh, but last year I went through and I was like, I, I basically, that blog post is basically like cut and pasted into a lot of the comments. I mean, I gave a lot of people the same comment, which is like, this sounds like a really interesting topic. Can you try and make it sound like, you know, it's about what they'll learn instead of about what you're going to talk about. Right. And the right. interesting thing to think of is like, the abstract is what they're going to put on the program. 
So like, right. why would somebody read this and come to your talk? Right. How are you going to relate this to them and the work that they do or whatever? Right. Why is it yeah. interesting to them? I mean, so the vast majority of the time, people pick a talk based only on the title. So as much as you can pack that even into the title. Hmm. Uh, and then if you're really lucky, maybe they'll uh, look at the abstract and read the first sentence. And if you're really, really lucky, maybe they'll read the entire thing for all of the talks in that time slot and like, you know, make an informed decision given their wants and needs at the moment. But really, most of what they're going to do is just they're just going to read the title. Right. And if the title doesn't sound compelling, then yeah, that's right. that seems to be how a lot of the decision making process goes. Right. Yeah, it's the title and the presenter basically is what yeah. I find. Like either you know the person, so you're definitely going to that, right. or right. like you've heard that this person's a great speaker. So if you're somebody new, you really have to get the title right, and you exactly. really have to get the abstract right. Cough, cough, Richard Schneeman, cough, cough. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there's, <laughs> that room there's, was packed. There's no denying that like there are there's it's good to have a mix of people that you people have heard of and people that they haven't. Right. Because you know you do want um, there are people that are really good speakers that you want to come back and like hear what they say every year. Yeah. Right. So you need that for sure. I mean, even just for continuity's sake. My concern, though, is that uh, without some of the assistance, we're just, that's all we're going to have. Sure. And I know that there are people who would rather have all that, but I feel like that's how you go down the path of stagnation as a community. And given that a programming language really is only its people, that's how you stagnate as a language as well. Right. And you also, like, the people we think of as really great speakers now weren't probably weren't really great speakers when they started oh, and yeah, didn't know how to write. Right. Talks, everybody right? start everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. So like you need to let people start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to think Benno sprung into the world fully formed though. <laughs> Who did? Benno. Oh. <laughs> ben Ornstein? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. His conference talks sound like he's just been doing it forever and he just you know, he gets gets he's just getting up there and talking. Right. right. Yeah. I'm sure they're very meticulously planned, but it's it's very like I like his style. I just kept like during my talk I just kept being like this is going well. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. And that's all just kept going through my head. <laughs> You're almost there. You have 10 minutes left. You can do this. Yeah. Um, People seem to really like it. Yeah, it went pretty well. I'm sorry. I was, I was pleasantly, like, when I said questions, and I was like, I'm probably going to have to sit here for a few minutes, and, like, hand shot up across the room, and I was like, okay. Wow. This went really well. That's a great well. sign. Yeah, and then people talked to me afterwards, so it was, it was really good. I was talking to Justin Searles afterwards. And I mentioned that, like, I've only done one conference talk, but I can already see that the best part of a conference talk is the 20 minutes after it. Yes. When you're like, okay, I did that. That was awesome. And then people come up to you and they talk to you. And, like, your Twitter's blowing up with, like, comments about how, like, it was enjoyable and people are quoting it. And you're like, oh, man, this is fantastic. And then, like, at the 21st minute, nobody else is talking to you. <laughs> and nobody, people stop mentioning you on Twitter. And you're like, when am I, where, do I, where do I get my next hit? Where's the bar? Right. Where, <laughs> where's the bar? That's what I usually think. <laughs> see, Nine I'm sorry. I'm already morning. thinking, like, when can I give this again? Where do I oh. go? What, yeah. what, like I want that way, 20 minutes again me. <laughs> yeah so it's interesting I mean, it's what fun. I love about it is that like I'll do a talk and then you know there's there's a certain set of people who are like oh that was great and that's I you know that's helpful for me um I've discovered that I can measure how good my talk is by how much Twitter feedback there is so even if it's negative um or like if there's none at all that's the bad sign right okay. but if there's positive feedback or if there's like well I didn't like this or blah 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 like that's also good just some feedback the more feedback you have, the better it feels like this to me. The overall, the better people liked it. Yeah. Um, but I, I like it because people will come up and be like, "Hey, did you think about, you know, this thing that I had never thought about in relation to that topic?" And I'm just like, "Wow, that's so obvious. Why didn't I think of that thing? Thank you." And then the next time I do the talk, I can put that thing in. 
<laughs> right. So it gets better every time, which is amazing. Yeah, I had anticipated like a certain amount of questions, and I was like, this, these are probably the questions I got, and then I got harder questions. And oh. I was like, oh, um, I hadn't thought about that. Let me think <laughs> about this. And like, I don't know, like people dealing with like really difficult people at work, because like, mm -hmm. I was talking about code reviews and like people that are dealing with like more difficult people than I've dealt with before. And it's like, I don't... Like I, I told one person to find a new job. Like I was like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah. Well, hey, I mean, there, there, sometimes that is the only answer. If you're in a place where you can't institute the change that you want to see, like that, that's yeah. your that's your other option, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Or you know, try and make it a little island of sanity as much as you can. Right. right? I've seen people do that in big companies a lot, yeah. where they're just like, I will make you know the people immediately around yep. me will be good, and then I can just you know we'll get this shit from the outside and we can deal with it there. But at right. least I've got this little perimeter. Right. right. Yep. It's a good strategy, too. It's, it can be tough, though, when you're up there, right? Because you, you, it's really difficult to tell if the audience is engaged because you just it look is. out and you're getting blank stares. Or sometimes oh. people are on their laptops or on their phones. Yeah. He got a guy, though. He had a slide, and the guy was just like, yes! Which you yeah, said was, never happens, but you are a liar. That it was happens. pretty awesome. Like, yeah. I was like, ooh, all right. This resonated with at least that guy. Right? Like, this is <laughs> one person's paying attention. Like, one person is happy enough to actually yell out yes. So, like, cool. All right. That's pretty awesome. Something. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. I think people, a lot of people are very scared of the question part, though. That seems to be, when I talk to people who are new speakers, they're really scared of what's going to happen when people ask questions. What if I don't know the answer? What if I can't even understand what they're saying? Right. And uh, I used to worry about that a lot, too, because I was like, well, what if someone gets up and is like, let me give you my talk, the, like the, the, the talk that was rejected that I wanted to talk about this topic, too. So let me tell you about it in 30 seconds, disguised as a question. Mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> and I, I do, I think, I see those occasionally still. But I've gotten a little bit better at like, hey, that's really interesting. Let's talk about it at lunch. Come find me. Right. right. I, did, I did do that a couple of times, mostly because like, I felt like I wanted to say more. But like, I could tell when people wanted me to move on from answering a question because other hands started to raise. Like, mm -hmm. you're done answering that now. Move on to me. So oh, I would like, cut my answer off and be like, uh, find me later. You over here. I mean, it's a good cue to watch yeah. out for. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, kinda, I wasn't anticipating that, but I could see it in my like, periphery vision. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, these people want me to move on. So yeah. that was interesting. I like the questions because, like, I don't know why. I guess, like, the talk part, I feel like I have specific goals in mind and I'll be disappointed if I don't hit them. But the questions are just talking. Yeah. Like, to people and answering specific things that I know they're interested in because they asked me about them. So, Well, the thing I liked about your talk, I mean, since it was about implementing a code review culture at your company, right? And with the, the style of question, the types of questions that you were getting, it seems like... I got the feeling that a lot of people in the audience really took something away from your talk and will have their lives immediately improved by having been to your talk. And I think that's really cool. Cool. Awesome. I wanted to shift gears a little bit if we can. So yeah, absolutely. you are the chief consultant at DevMind. That's right. Right. And that's kind of recent, six months, maybe six months ish. <laughs> your, your Twitter bio says I'm in your base teaching you how to refactor your code. <laughs> right. Yeah, so memes like, from the 2000s. I feel like much. I like it. I feel like, uh, I, f I can't remember where I read this, but I feel like you said that like what really appealed to you about this job was like getting to do like the established code refactors. Like that's something I you really, really love into. those. So many people hate them. They're like, Oh, Brian, I have to go in and look at someone else's code. And, and I, I feel like a code base that is older, you can see like, you can see battle scars, you know, you can see where, f where things were fought and where they were like, where the front is. Right. So like where things were fought to a standstill and then everyone just abandoned it. Uh, and, and you know, a lot of times when I was, when I was younger, I used to look at code and I'm just like, who would write this? These people. Oh my God. Right. And as I got older, I realized every piece of bad code is a sane response to insane situations usually. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, let me say it's the rational response to whatever situation they're in. People make rational. I mean, 
as much as we can as humans, right? Rational decisions. And so if there's something in there that looks ridiculous, the question you can ask yourself is what ridiculous circumstance would lead me to write that code right. Right. and just imagine it and then say, could that ever happen in this organization? Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, and hopefully right. they, they gave you some context in the commit message. Right. So there's a little bit and then, you know, hopefully there's people there that right. yeah. remember a yeah. little bit at least. Oral tradition passed right. down. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's super useful because it's, you know, it's, it's useful up to a point. I think that, um, it's also useful to usually, uh, and when I'm running projects, I love getting new people onto the project because, they see things that I've just gotten used to. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. I, 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 it's noise to me now. I skip over it, and then they're like, why don't you do that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> they're like, yeah, I, I, I saw that too when I was new, and somehow I forgot. Yeah, like, I was exactly. Like, I, I, mean, I got so distracted many... by 75 other things I wanted to do, and, like, and my system was already set up, so I, didn't, like, I was like, oh, I don't care anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It also periodically forces you to get your readme up to date and make sure your onboarding scripts actually work and that your seeds file actually runs because those are the things that just rot over time. And if you don't oh, yeah. have new developers coming Essentially on. Essentially immediately. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the hope is that every new developer only has to change one or two steps. Hopefully. Right. So. <laughs> We've started running most of our setup script as part of what Travis does. So it kind of like. Oh, really? It takes a little more time. Yeah. But it also solves those problems, right? If the setup scripts are broken, your build's going to break. And I think that's a more important probably for, I mean, it's important for all projects, but especially as a consultancy, like mm. we're going to bring on new people to a project. We're going to hand this project over. Like we right. want to make sure that when we hand it over, everything's working I had never thought about it. That's a great idea though. Yeah. So how do you find, like we, we've discussed like refactoring mindsets and the mindset you have to be in to like draw a line somewhere. Mm. So how do you decide like, when you're refactoring something, like, I've gone far enough. Because for me, the project I'm on now, like, for a little more context, like, I feel like when I start pulling at a thread, like, it's just going to keep coming. It's just going to unravel everything. Right. And so, like, and there's this no is, way to, like, knot it off. Right. right? This is, right. And, and where do you knot it off, right? right. Like, so I, I const- or maybe I know when I start that, like, okay, I'm only going to touch this far. Like, I'm only going to touch the controller level here. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, oh, but I could just make this one change over here. And I think mm-hmm. that's, like, a really, I, I struggle with that all the time. Like, do you have any. <laughs> Do you also struggle with this? I like, do, <laughs> I do. I, I, in general, the way I think about refactoring is like, uh, I was in the Girl Scouts when I was a kid, and we had this rule that when you go to a campground, you leave it slightly better than you found it. Yeah. Right. So you'd pick up one piece of trash that you didn't leave there. Right. And I think that's how I think about it as an everyday practice, is that I will improve this little thing here. I'll make this name more clear. I'll pull this out into a method. I'll do something small to improve the code I'm looking at. And then if I want to do something larger, I think... Where I used to get hung up is that I would say, well, I'm not going to make do this refactoring unless I can do the whole thing. Right. Like, I don't want to leave it half done. What I've discovered over time, though, is I, it's actually better to leave it half done. Because then you can sort of see it both ways and see live with it both ways and really see if the refactoring is going to improve things or not and then decide whether or not to finish it. And I almost like to do like a little test bit. I'm like, okay, what's the smallest thing I could refactor to figure out whether I like this? Mm. So that I can then, you know, then, you know, I just talk about it, stand up and be like, you know, anytime you have to touch this code, just like think about which one you like better. Mm. Um, those things can get lost over time for sure. And that's where you get these like weird seams in your code base where it's half one way and half the other way. Yeah. We uh, discussed that recently. Like we have the code base I'm on now is like there's mini test and there's RSpec and there's oh, yes. like JBuilder and active model serializers. Oh. And there's uh, some backbone and some jQuery, like regular jQuery. Mm-hmm. Luckily there's no other JavaScript MVC. <laughs> but you can tell, like you said before, like you can see the battle scars and where like, 
okay, this app at one point had several teams working on it, and you can see like, oh, this is how this like these people were into Backbone at this time. Like mm-hmm. this was probably a few years ago. Like yeah. you're like, okay, yep, you see that, but then it never got over to this other area of the application, which is all just jQuery, and it was written around the same time, and that's because this was a different team. And so you start to see the structure of the team come out in the code, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah that's Conway's law, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is interesting seeing when when a code base gets old enough. You can just co- sort of go through the files and, and see whatever was trending in, in whatever space they're in over time. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, a few years ago, they have the Backbone code. Prior to that, they have the jQuery code like that. Yeah, I have one client that's, who has a, a Rails 4 app now. Mm-hmm. They just did the upgrade. They started out on 0.9. Wow. That's so awesome. So there is, like, there's a lot of stuff in there where you're like, wow, I remember that. Like, uh, acts as something something. Yeah, remember yeah, those? Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, that was popular for a while, right? <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, wow, I didn't know people still did that. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, they did this five years ago. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes way more sense. no reason to change <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right? But. And so, you know, I mean, you could change it to the thing that's now, I don't even, I'm sure there's a modern version of it. But yeah. uh, if it's working and tests are passing, like, hmm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny, though, because you look at, through it, and you're like, hmm. <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, right, I remember now. This was before we talked about dry, and so that's why there's all this crap in the controller and Nothing, you know, you've still got controllers that have big, you know, big lists of things in them instead of writing right. stuff to the model and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah we have uh, working on an app right now that has a controller that has like, I don't know, like 26 actions in it. And oh, wow. None of them are the seven. Like, well, it's almost restful- better that one way. Of them yeah. is, one of them is update. And then oh. all, all, there's 26 other ones. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the worst of both worlds. <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> So what do you, as chief consultant, are you like floating around between projects? Like how's, what's your role there? Uh, I do. So I'm, most of my company's in, in Chicago and I'm in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I work with clients locally in San Francisco. Okay. But uh, the chief consultant part comes in because I, I help them a lot with uh, just practice stuff. Um, we have a practice lead who's fantastic, but they wanted to get some input from you know, people who have done consulting in other situations. I, did, I worked at Pivotal Labs for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done consulting on my own. And so I've got a, a slightly different set of practices. So it's been interesting to sort of try and merge them. It's almost like a marriage of two very complicated families. And we're just kind of work out like, okay, so if you get your way with the garbage schedule, then I should get, you know. So right. it's, uh, but it's been interesting because one of the things I didn't realize is that there are large parts of my practice that are the way they are because of where I live. Huh. Because I live in San Francisco. And the way I discovered this is that the way that I typically talk about pair programming is uh, as a remedy for siloing, right? So if you've got, uh, Pivotal used to call this the bus number. How many people need to get hit by a bus before your project is out of commission uh, and you want it to be very high? But the main reason we do that in San Francisco is because the average tenure of a developer is a year to 18 months. And they don't quit because it's a bad company, right? They quit because they get bored. Their friend's doing a startup, you know, or something like that. Right. And so you just have to plan for a lot of turnover. And pairing is one of the things that hedges against that turnover. And so when I go and talk to clients who are in other markets where that's not the case, where they've got people who are like the average 10 years, three years, or four years, that's much less of an issue. So that's, I guess, one example of the things where it's like, oh, yeah, okay. So that makes sense where I am. I mean, there's other reasons to do it, too, for sure. sure. But, uh, but that's the one I typically talk about because that's the one that uh, especially non-technical people can really uh, get a visceral sense for. Right. You know, they, they look at the numbers. They know what their turnover rate is. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that that way. Yeah, I, I remember, remember last time I was changing jobs, 
I was talking to a technical recruiter and he was like, you know, in this industry, people change jobs every two years. And I was like, what? That's not my experience. <laughs> like my experience, I was like my first job out of college, I was at for five years. And my next job, I was at for like seven and a half years. And now I have this job. And right? none of them so were like, in San Francisco. I'm none guessing. of them were in San Francisco, right? None of them were in that market. And he's yeah. probably like looking at it heavily skewed in that direction, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, of course he's trying, he's making his push based on like, he wants me to go with one of his clients well, on, sure. and I have reservations. He's like, big deal. So in two years you have another job, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's not me. I don't, I want to stay somewhere. Yeah. I remember when I started <laughs> out, they were like job hopping. That's a bad thing. You know? Yeah. And it turns out that it's actually not, it's just a thing. It's right. a thing that happens. Yeah. And you know, if you're in a market where there's a lot of opportunity, I think it's inevitable. The most common pattern I see is like, I'm, you know, people are working on a project and then someone leaves because their friend got into Y Combinator or something, right? And they're just going to go down for the summer and, like, hang out in Sunnyvale for three months. And then, you know, then they get more funding. And then, you know, but it's one of those things where you, you need to keep good relationships with everyone. Right. Right. So even if uh, someone leaves and goes to work at a client, like, that's just how it works, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. yeah. it's part of the game. And, you know, like, they're, they, you know, they might get bored of their product job and want to come back. And should right. that be the case, you should probably let them. Yeah. yeah. You know, assuming they were doing good work, right? right? We have a saying at, in our playbook at ThoughtBot is, like, we should be the type of consultants that people want to hire. Like, people want to poach us. Right. But we should also be the type of place people want to stay. Right. So, like, it's trying. And, and it's, it's hard because, like, you get really good clients and ultimately you're eventually going to lose one or two people to those clients. It's just the way consulting works, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then it also becomes a challenge for the company to make sure that you have a culture and a workplace that is better. Exactly. Be the best. Right. That's an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. What were the, what were the other practice type things? Like when you say, when you, say like you, t- you, dis- you consult with them on practice, right? What, is, what do you mean by that? Um, I mean stuff like project planning. How do you run iteration planning meetings? How do you run retrospectives? Okay. How do you do stand-up? How do you keep communication lines open with the client? You know, how do you use Tracker? How do you use Trello or whatever it is you're using right. and, and stuff like that? And also more development-focused things like pair programming, tests, testing, test design, uh, architecture stuff. Wow, everything. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, yeah, that's how why I use you it very do work, general. Yeah, how does one work <laughs> as a developer? Right. You know the syntax. Now let's talk about all these other things. Right, yeah. about all the important things <laughs> that are 90% of your job. Do you use RubyLine? I do. You, you still do after leaving Pivotal? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I do. I really like how you can run all the tests just sitting, like, all in the same thing, right? So I can, right. like, I'm looking at something, and I can hit a key combination, and it runs my little focus spec. I don't have to go right. back to the terminal and look for something. Right. right. I used to use RubyMine, but this last time I used it was probably a couple years ago. How have the, like, static, and well, it's not really static analysis, I guess, but there is some static analysis that it does. So as how close does it, as you can how get, is it, anyway. it, it was constantly improving. Is it still, like... It's getting better. Cool. It's, you know, it's not at, like visual studio levels right, right. right. I mean, it can't um, be <laughs> but you know I, I think that uh it's it's definitely improving they're working really hard on integrations with a spring the new uh half runs your rails app yeah thing. the preloader yeah. thing yeah. yeah i don't quite get it but anyway you i can, turn that off yeah, <laughs> yeah i, I disable spring one out. set in my uh the, the, minute oh, okay. it, the minute it costs you time it costs you more time than it saved you right because you're like why are why are my tests still why what's going on yeah. and you're like oh i changed an initializer and yeah. you've spent all that you've spent all that time like you could have just let the test run as how they were going to run before yeah <laughs> I, do, I do think Matt's gave his keynote at RubyConf and one of the things 
I think during I think it was during the Q and A. I remember the context. Basically, he reiterated, "We are never going to have real macros in Ruby." Which there would be a lot to be gained in static analysis tooling if Active Record, for example, in a compile time macro, could go look at schema RB or even have an active database connection and and actually tell the compiler in some way, like here's the methods that will be on this object, hmm. um, and not have to have Ruby mine presumably actually execute schema RB or, or at least they must, look inside of it. But you need to be able to execute known safe code. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, I'm hoping that if they do implement any of the, like, what was it, soft typing, soft typing stuff yeah. that he talks about, that it'll, that will be helpful as well. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, it would, never, it would never be able to evaluate anything that touches Active Record if, if we can't. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think the it's interesting. I think Pivotal Labs must be one of the largest institutional users of RubyMine. Yeah. Um, and they were in town for some conference. I don't remember when. So they came by the office. This must have been three years ago, three or four years ago. And they you know, did a little presentation on what's coming up on the next version. And then they were like, so we'd like to hear from you about what you want in RubyMine. And awesome. <laughs> uh, and basically, and so they sort of went around and did a poll, and basically what everyone wanted in the room was speed it up, make it faster. Mm-hmm. And they were surprised. Yeah, and I wonder huh. if this comes from, you know, they, they come from a background of a very large, fully featured IDE, and they're like, we're missing all of these things in RubyMine. Like, we're missing a thing that does automatic this and that. And we're just like, well, that's great, but could you please make it faster? Could you make it launch faster? <laughs> right? That would be great. That would be the first thing. And then, like, the UI interaction's a little slow. Make it, and they've yeah. been making improvements on that. Like they I have, remember. and they've, they've been very responsive right. uh, <laughs> to the requests that we have. And if you file something with their bug, track, bug tracker, they actually respond, yeah. which is pretty cool. That's, that's yeah, really when, cool. I was a, when I used RubyMine, I was surprised by how, like, like they would not only respond, but then they'd be like, "Yep, this is fixed in this build," and I'd be like, "Oh, fantastic! When can I get it?" Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so I like it. The, the thing I like the most about it, actually, that would make it hard for me to do another editor, is that you can command click on a keyword or a piece of syntax, and it will take you or a method call, and it will take you to where it's defined. Right. And it's almost always right, even if it's like some you know a very generic process name. Like, <laughs> and then it'll pop up a little list. Okay, here's all the places that I found a method defined process, and then mm. you can kind of like pick the one that you want to look at. Right. As opposed to, I mean, I guess the the other option is like bundle open, things like that right. for yep. gem, for looking at stuff in gems specifically. But I find that really good, especially when I'm pairing with people that are uh, new to Ruby to be like, they'll be like, what does that do? And I'll be like, well, let's go look. Right. Let's just, Perfect. you know, yeah. Cool. So I think if you were to ever try and do that on, let's say, save, there are actually, not, not even just because it's a generic name, but because there's actually 20 correct answers to where the method on that object is defined and called yeah, super. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which one of these, you know, and which order are they? Who knows? Right. Yeah, which one wins? We change that every version. It's <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else? Anything else you want to talk about? What else do I want to talk it's about? It's getting loud in here, so I was <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we're between talks. Are we? Yeah. Okay. So I've been thinking a lot recently about about object-oriented design, which a lot of people don't like, especially about its um, relationship to functional programming. So we've got these object-oriented languages, we've got these functional languages. And for a lot of of people say things like, well, you know, there's a lot of problems that functional programming is better equipped to solve than object-oriented programming is. And the more I dig into that, the more I realize that, like, there are two different interpretations of what object-oriented design means. And... One of them is a very top-down, I will design my boxes and lines diagram, and then I will implement it kind of design. And the other is sort of this bottom-up, like, I will build something ugly, and then I will sort of graduate things out of it as it looks like it's necessary. And object-oriented design, as it's taught 
in schools is generally the boxes and lines, top-down, design first and then implement method. Mm -hmm. And that's how most people try to do it because they think that's how you're supposed to do it. Right. And you get things like SOLID, right, which is the acronym that's yep. all those principles. And you're like, well, that's great. And so you look at them, but they don't – and they, they describe what your code should will look like – when it's done, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they don't give you any way to get there. They don't give you any ideas about, like, how do I get my code to be open-closed, right? Like, right. It, it doesn't say anything about that. It just says it should be. Right. Right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, so what that means is I need to design something that's open-closed. Right. Because that's what it says to do. Right. And I'm being a good software. And people, you know, they mean well, right? They're like, I'm, I care about quality. I want to do good object-oriented design, so I'm going to do this thing. It just never works, though. The top-down approach just doesn't... You would never end up with the right abstractions. Right. And the only way you can get the right abstractions is by bubbling them up from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And just writing something ugly and maybe procedural even, and just get it working. Right. Once you get it working, then you start figuring out what the abstractions are, and you can... And that, I feel like if we were... I feel like not very many people think of object-oriented design that way. And I wonder if... If more people thought about it that way, I wonder if it would be a different conversation that we'd be having with the functional programming people. Because I suspect when the functional people say things like uh, functional languages are better for X than object-oriented languages, what they really mean is that top-down thing you do doesn't work, <laughs> which they are completely right about. And I wonder if we could sort of shift the conversation so that we're like, okay, there probably are right. things that exist that functional programming languages are better at. Right. Uh, you can also just look at it and be like, what if an object were just a bundle of curried functions? And right? if you think about it that way, now how do these compare? Right. The whole, like, this set of problems is better solved by functional... Like, I've never... I feel like that's something people say, but never... Like, like the, your thing should be open-closed, right? <laughs> like, what, what does it mean? Like, how, what, what are What's these types of problems mean? that are better... Yeah at being solved by functional programming, and why is that? Like, yeah. no, that doesn't get elaborated on, or if it does, I haven't read that part yet. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And Abdi Grimm did a really interesting talk uh, at the RubyConf in Brazil. Which one was it? Uh, it was a couple months ago. Uh, that basically was this idea of you've sort of got this mechanistic, top-down, central planning approach, and then you've got this bubbling up growth. It's almost like you're growing your objects out of your code approach. Right. And you can see this in a lot of the processes, too, right? Like the waterfall is a very, like, I will plan everything up front and very top-down. And then you've got Agile, which, as it's commonly practiced, is more like waterfall. But as it's supposed to be practiced, is more like sort of bubbling your processes up from what works for your people rather than imposing a set of rules that then they follow. Sure. So. I mean, I think, I think the same can even be true of APIs and uh, designing DSLs. Like, I, I think one of the worst things you can do is actually starting with, here is what I would like my final API to look like. Mm -hmm. um, if you haven't really gotten into the guts of implementing it, it's like saying, this, I will raise my child this way before it's even born. Right. Um, <laughs> I have decided. Yeah. I mean, you, I made lots of those decisions before I had kids. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had kids. And then, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? And that changes your perspective on things. But it's, it's, it's like you get a rough idea of what you want to do, kind of come up with objects that help you do that, compose them manually. And then I think the APIs and the DSLs just come from what's painful and where is their duplication and what are the common patterns for composing these objects. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Cool. I, think, I think we got an episode and it's about to get a lot louder. So. Okay. <laughs> well, thank okay. you guys for having me. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks to Sarah May for joining us today on the Bike Shed. Show notes for this episode will be at bikeshed.fm slash 15. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us about this episode or any other episode, you can uh, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, tweet us at underscore bikeshed, or leave feedback at bikeshed.fm. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bike Shed.